Once again, thank you for inviting me to be here. I did have a chance to get to know your pastor, Dan, uh, and I know you're all praying for him that his, uh, his trip back to, uh, I guess, Germany goes well and that he gets his visa and all that kind of stuff worked out. So I'm praying with you as well about that. Well, growing up, I was one of those kids that, uh, that took a long time to get my growth spurt. So when I started high school, I was like five foot six, maybe 90 pounds. Uh, to make matters worse, my older brother, two and a half years older than me, uh, was one of those boys who you know, grew really fast. He like shaved when he was seven years old. Uh, as a freshman in high school, he was six foot four. And so my last name is Mitchell, and, uh, and his nickname was always Big Mitch. And as you might imagine, my nickname was Little Mitch. And uh, I hated that name. I don't think there's a teenage boy in the world that wants to be called Little Anything, right? But small or little isn't always bad. So Houston Astros' second baseman, Jose Altuve, is the smallest player in Major League Baseball. He's five foot six inches tall. Four times he's won the Silver Slugger Award at second base. A year, or a few years ago, he was the American League MVP, and next week he'll be playing in his fourth World Series. He makes me think of a guy in the Bible named Agur. Agur himself is rather small and ordinary. His name is found only once in the entire canon of Scripture, He's credited with writing one small chapter of the Bible. And if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. It's the 30th chapter of the book of Proverbs. I like Agur. Agur was a keen observer of life. Uh, he saw the same things we see, small, ordinary things, but somehow he was able to see more in them than we typically see. And Agur especially loved the animal world. He was kind of, well, the Marlon Perkins of the Bible. Anybody remember Marlon Perkins, that old guy from Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, a TV show for some of you that may not remember, but, uh, you know, he was not only an 80-year-old man, but uh, he was the only 80-year-old man I'd ever seen wrestle a boa constrictor, right? Agar was like that. For instance, I want you to listen to his words in verses 24 through 28 of Proverbs chapter 30. He writes this. Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Hyrixes are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be caught with a hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. Usually when we model, we model upward. So we place before us things that are greater, bigger, more successful than we are. So if you're a business person, you tend to model those people who have a larger bottom line than yours. If you're a pastor like I have been for many years, then you tend to look at the larger churches as models of success. But Agur doesn't model upward towards that which is larger. He models 
downward. And he chooses four creatures here that are small, very small, in fact. And though he doesn't say it, they're not particularly appealing either. I mean, not many people keep a pet ant. You're not likely to see one out for a walk with their pet lizard. And if you see a locust in your home, you're more likely to stomp on it than cuddle with it. When I take my, my grandkids to the zoo, like I did a few weeks ago, they want to see the big animals. They want to see the big cats. They want to see the gorillas and the bears and the giraffes. But we don't spend a lot of time with the tiny, small creatures. And yet it's these small, rather unappealing creatures that Agor chooses to set before us as models of exceedingly wise living. And by the way, that's what Proverbs is all about. It's called wisdom literature. And we all need wisdom, don't we? To live skillfully in this day and age. That's what Proverbs is all about. And that's what Agor is trying to teach us and offer us wisdom from these small creatures. And he starts with one of the smallest creatures of all, the ant. As he does with each, he describes one particular weakness or disability, if you will, of the ant. He says, ants are creatures of little strength. Now, if you ever watched an ant up close, you know that they're strong enough to carry around pieces of food twice their size. But Agur is saying that they're so small that even those pieces of food are a mere crumb to us. I've never seen an ant carry a book or, or even a banana. So they aren't strong, yet he says they store up their food in the summer. And so the ant works and gathers today so he'll have enough tomorrow when the opportunity to gather is gone. And to put it simply, the wisdom of the ant is to gather while you can. Gather while you can. To do that, you have to know the season you're in. You have to know what time it is in your life. My wife and I, as I said earlier, we raised three kids. And as we raised our kids, we found that there was like a window of time in our children's life when they were particularly open to spiritual things, to the things of God. And during this time, they, they, they loved to spend time with us. They loved to pray with us. They loved to hear Bible stories that we would read to them. But we discovered that that time doesn't necessarily last forever, does it? And so if I'm a wise mother or father who understands the season, I'll gather while I can. I'll take advantage of that teachable season in my child's life. Some of you perhaps are unmarried. Maybe that's not what you would have chosen at this particular time in your life, but that's where you're at. It's important you understand the season you're in and gather while you can. There are things that you can do now that you might not be able to do later. In fact, the Apostle Paul went so far as to say that as an unmarried person, you're in a season of life that affords you time to serve the Lord that you might not have if you were married. And so as an unmarried man or woman, you have to understand the season you're in and gather while you can. Like the ant does, all of us need to realize that winter is coming. That time that we can't really gather. I, I don't know exactly what that means for each and every one of us. It might be a health problem that keeps us from doing the things that we love doing. 
It might be a season of unemployment where we lose the opportunity to earn a buck. It might be some time when our, our children who we've loved and nurtured maybe wander away, maybe turn their backs on us. It might be a job that, that for a season of time allows us very little time for the things we love doing most. It could be a lot of things. But one thing for sure, in some way for all of us, winter's coming. It seems to me the best thing we can do to prepare for winter is cultivate a relationship with God through prayer, through the study of his word. Because it's those things that will sustain us through the winter. And that takes effort. And those aren't easy disciplines to maintain. We like to think that you know, doing such things is kind of like winning the lottery, like a spiritual high. But practicing these disciplines is more like placing pennies in a bank, one at a time. It's consistency over time that makes a difference. And one thing about ants is they're amazingly consistent in their work. They never stop. They attend picnics, but they don't relax. While you're sitting back drinking your lemonade, they're carrying off your sandwich, one crumb at a time. And they keep at it. If we're going to be ready for winter, we have to gather while we can. We have to invest now in the disciplines that will carry us through the winter. For some of you, maybe it's winter for you right now. And maybe you weren't prepared for it. And you feel like you live in a place that C.S. Lewis once described as, it's always winter, but never Christmas. And you're suffering the consequences of poor choices. And I want you to know that even in that season, God has compassion on you. He's still a God of unending mercy and grace. And all you can do in those times, those winter times, is turn to him. And the wonder of his grace is that as long as you're alive, it's never, ever too late to do that. He won't turn you away. So from the ant, we learn to understand the season. Gather while we can. Next, he teaches us something about what he calls the hyrix. Now, the NIV calls this a hyrix. Uh, it's more likely, scholars would agree, that he's referring to a rock badger. And these rock badgers were often found in the high mountains of Palestine. The rock badger is a timid animal about the size of a rabbit. It's virtually defenseless in the presence of its enemies because its feet are so soft it can't burrow like other animals of its kind. And that's probably why the text says they're creatures of little power. So they don't make a very intimidating foe. But Agur says their great lit wisdom lie in the fact that they make their home in the crags, literally the rocks. I've seen badgers do this in the Rocky Mountains. They love to be out in the sun, but they never wander far from the rocks. The thing that makes the badger so wise is it knows where its security lies. It knows where to hide. Its wisdom is not in its great strength or courage. If it wanders away from the rock, it is easy prey for a lion or a wolf. The badger, though, seems to have this innate sense of how weak, how vulnerable it really is. But it's wise enough to make its home and find its security in the rocks. And you know that throughout Scripture, God himself is called the rock 
of his people. Just listen to a couple of these references. 2 Samuel 22:47 says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. Psalm 61.2 says, From the end of the earth I will call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. God himself is our rock. It's not enough you know, just to know that. It's easy to say that, right? If I were to privately interview each and every one of you, I would imagine that most of you would tell me, well, yeah, my rock is God. God is my rock. But it's not enough to just know about the rock. We all know about the rock. We need to know the rock. And that's different. I just imagine the badgers in my, you know, weird imagination. I imagine the badgers having a weekend retreat out on the prairie. And they decide they want to talk about the rock. And this group of badgers, they get together, and one group says, well, the most important thing about the rock is how wide it is. And then another group of badgers get together, and they say, no, 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 the most important thing about the rock is how tall and just, and just magnitude of the rock is amazing. It's how tall it is, how exalted. Then there are the more practical badgers, and they say, no, 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 the most important thing about the rock is the size of the hole in the rocks so we can climb in and hide. And eventually, like people, the badgers divide up into another bunch of different groups. Maybe call them churches. There's the church of the wide rock. There's the church of the tall rock. And there's the church of the hole in the rock. <laughs> the problem is they can argue about the dimensions of the rock until they're blue in the face, but still not know the security and safety of the rock. If we're going to be wise like the badger, we'd better know how weak, how small, how vulnerable we are, how fragile our lives are, and we'd better know the reality, the reality of the security that the rock provides us. Our security does not lie in our bank account. It does not lie in our insurance policies. It does not lie in that clean bill of health. It does not rely in the next relationship. It lies with God. And that doesn't mean we run to him only in times of trouble. I'm struck by how the text says they make their what? Their home. This is where they live. This is not a temporary place they run to in times of danger. This is their home. They live from that home. God is always our rock in good times and bad. It always amazes me how God finds ways to remind me personally to apply the things that I'm teaching about. I've started a new season in my life. For 35 years, I've done the same thing. I've been in the same church. It's provided a lot of security for me, right? It's been my identity in many ways. And now I'm, I'm cut loose. And so where, where does my security lie? Who's my rock in this season of life? And so I'm learning this in a whole new way today. Learn something from the ant. Gather while you can. Know the season you're in. Learn something from the rock badger. Know where your security lies in the rock. Next, he says, learn something from the locusts. I don't know, it seems funny to me to hold a locust up as a model of anything. Throughout scripture, these insects 
are actually used as instruments of the judgment of God. Uh, it was the locusts God sent upon the Egyptians, right, as one of the ten plagues. And it was locusts God said he would send upon the nation Israel if they denied him. But Agur says they have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. A locust by itself is not a very scary thing. It can be a, as, about as dangerous as a grasshopper. But you put a whole bunch of locusts together and you have a very, very big problem on your hands. They multiply at a frightening rate. They move in huge swarms over great distances doing massive damage. There's power in a swarm of locusts. And that is where their wisdom lies. Without anyone giving them orders, they hang together as a community. They know their power to do anything lies in their ability to stay together. That's their wisdom. And this is a theme, you know, throughout all of Scripture. In the Old Testament, God calls a people, a covenant people to himself. In the New Testament, he calls a community. In fact, the word for church in the Bible is ecclesia, which means the called out ones. He never calls anyone in isolation. So your faith might be very personal, but it can never be sustained alone. Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. Read through the letters of Paul and you'll see a whole cadre of individuals who partnered with Paul in ministry. Epaphroditus, Onesimus, Silas, Barnabas, Timothy, Titus, Luke. Oftentimes we understand the commands and the promises of scripture as, as given to us as individuals when in fact more often they're given to us as a community of people. Apart from community, the commands of God are burdensome. And the promises of God can be a source of pride. One of my favorite Peanuts cartoons, Linus is watching a show on TV when Lucy comes into the room and demands that he change the channel. Lucy threatens Linus with her fist if he doesn't comply with, with her demands. Linus asks Lucy, what makes you think you can just walk in here and take over? Lucy says, these five fingers. She says, individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them up into a single unit, they form a weapon that's terrible to behold. Linus reluctantly concedes, which channel do you want? Then he turns away and he looks at his fingers and he says to them, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> the problem is we live in a culture that's all about the one, the individual. We live in a hero culture. We look for people who rise above everyone else in sports, in movies, in business, in the church. We idolize the superstar, not the person who blends in with her community. I have to tell you, I've never seen a hero locust. Never seen one. Locusts have no superstars, only a swarm. And that's the secret of their impact. That's what makes them wise. There's a plague in our nation today. And I'm afraid there's a plague in our church today as well. It's the plague of individualism. 
But followers of Jesus are called to live in community. As hard as that sometimes can be, the fellowship of the church is an expression of that. You cannot sustain your Christian life and make an impact on the world without being part of the swarm, without being in rank with a group of people who know you, love you, pray for you, hold you accountable, and encourage you. So learn from the ant. Gather where you can. Know what season you're in. Learn from the rock badger. Know where your security lies with the rock. And learn from the locust. Your power lies in community. Last but not least, Agor says, learn from the lizard. The lizard. Of all four lessons, I'll be honest with you, this one is the most difficult to understand. Agor says the lizard can be caught with the hand, and that's true. As a boy, I grew up in Los Altos, and we had a, a creek behind my home called Adobe Creek, and, and I, I remember I spent many summer afternoons in that, in that creek with my friends, and we actually caught lizards barehanded. Sometimes they'd bite, but it didn't hurt much. Lizards are not particularly quick or dangerous, yet it says despite the fact that they be caught with the hand, he says they're found in king's palaces. Now, what's that all about? I think the thing that I notice first about this is there's a kind of incongruity to that. Lizards don't belong in a king's palace. The question is, what quality do lizards display that allow them to end up in a king's palace? You can read ten commentaries, Bible commentaries, and you'll get ten answers to that question. But let me make a stab at it. When I think of a lizard in a king's palace, the word that comes to mind for me is audacity. Audacity. I mean, a lizard in a king's palace is like a pig trying to have a conversation with Albert Einstein. Those two things are just incongruous. But a lizard doesn't seem to care about that. Because of its audacity, that's where a lizard might end up in a king's palace. A few years ago, I had a wonderful opportunity to become the chaplain for the San Francisco Giants. Now understand that I, I grew up on the San Francisco Peninsula as a Giants fan. I grew up watching Mays and McCovey and Marichal and the wind-strewn wrapper flying around Candlestick Park. I love the San Francisco Giants. And all of a sudden, I found myself like with an all-access pass uh, into the clubhouse of the Giants, onto the field of the Giants, having relationships with the Giants, and, and uh, I'm hanging out with guys that I watched win three World Series. I've got to be honest, for those four years that I was the chaplain for the Giants, I felt like a lizard in a king's palace. And when I think about this, I can't help but think of the audacity of our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, think about it, because we dare to trust him as our Savior, and follow him as our Lord, we of all people will one day find ourselves where? In the king's palace. It's one thing to have a, have a few hours, a few years even, with some professional baseball players. Quite another to have an eternity with the king of kings and lord of lords. But the Bible says, because of the audacity of our faith in Jesus Christ, because of our trust in him, that's our destiny, a king's palace. In his first letter to the Corinthians, 
the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that God chose not not the strong things, not the big things, but the small and the weak and the disadvantaged things like you and me in order to show off, to display his astounding grace and mercy. Every one of these little animals that Agor sets before us has a disadvantage. The ant isn't strong, the badger isn't mighty, the locusts have no king, and the lizard can be caught with the hand, but every one of them in some way displays the wisdom of God. And so I would ask you this morning, what's your disadvantage? What's the thing in your life, your past, your present, that keeps you feeling really small? What's your weakness? In this journey, on this pathway of wisdom, what's the thing in your life that keeps you small? Whatever it is, thank God for it. And take a lesson from the ant. Understand the season you're in and gather while you can. Take a lesson from the badger. Know where your security lies with the rock. Learn from the locust. Your power lies in community. And finally, learn from the lizard who teaches us that through the audacity of our faith in Jesus Christ, we will end up in a king's palace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for you that you are a God who loves us so unconditionally that you took the weak and despised and disadvantaged and small things of this world like each and every one of us in this room right now. And you loved on us and you showed destiny of a king's palace. We're so grateful for that, Lord. We pray that we would learn these wisdom lessons from these small things and that we truly would be people who gather while we can, people who, who know that our power lies in community, that we would be people who know that our security lies with the rock, and we would have the audacity and the boldness of faith in Jesus Christ that would one day lead us into a king's palace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.